You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some of you do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter of rec- from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. For the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Thank you, Evan. And good morning. Uh, my name is Mike. Uh, it's a joy uh, to be here this morning. I serve uh, with Zach's one of the pastors here at Sydney Hill, Brisbane. Um, I'm going to pray, and and then we're we're going to get stuck into this this meaty uh, section of scripture. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and Lord, as we come to it now, remind us that you are speaking to us through it. Uh, Lord, I just pray for all of us here. There are many things going on in our lives. Uh, Our brains are are just flickering away at the various distractions, uh, things coming up in our week, things that have come into this weekend. But Lord, I pray that you would clear our minds and our hearts this morning. And I pray that we would focus this morning on you. Uh, And would you use uh, our time together uh, to glorify yourself, to make us more like Jesus. And I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Question. Hands up who is doing well as a Christian. Hands up who thinks they're doing pretty well. 
Not many hands. I couldn't say, I just bit ducked at that. I didn't see too many hands. Now, you know, maybe some of you, you know, put your hand up in your heart. Um, you know, that's how some of you roll. That's okay. Respect that. But, but I think um, not many of us are, are quick to put our hands up when we ask that. Uh, because perhaps uh, if we're honest with ourselves, questions like that sort of make us feel a little bit ashamed. Uh, sometimes we, we feel, and I even feel this as a pastor, that uh, we're imposters. Like, are we really kind of living for Jesus? Like, maybe you should be feeling, yeah, we should be praying more. We can always be praying more. We can always be reading the Bible more. We can always be more loving to people that are hard to love, sharing Jesus with people that don't know Him. Um, We could be more forgiving, more patient at work. Uh, Some of us feel like, hey, we've been Christians for a while, years, decades even, and yet where is the change? Where's the growth? Shouldn't my life look like different, significantly differently from what it did years ago? Why is it that so many of us are feeling that this constant sense of guilt or perhaps apathy towards the Christian life? Well, I think there's lots of reasons for that. Our world's a beautiful but complex place, and it's very individualistic. We're very introspective. You know, our world of kind of social media, ironically, is not all that social, uh, we're, we're superficially connected to more people than ever before in history, and I think that makes us more insecure. Uh, we're prone to more comparison. Uh, we, we look up to people and we see their lives on display, but we only see a little window into their lives. We see their wealth, we, we compare ourselves, our body image, relationship status, career, but I think also it drifts into our faith and into the church. You know, social media, it's hardly the platform, it seems, to confess our sin, to display the, the inner workings of our private life. You know, we get a, a superficial glimpse into each other's lives, even at church, maybe in the window we see each other on Sunday, and we assume, even as we look around, that people around us have it all together. But when we stop and, and think about our own lives, we, we realize that we don't. It can cause us to this deep sense of guilt. I think there's another reason why we feel guilty. It's because we don't know Jesus. We don't know Jesus. We don't really believe what's in here. Now, some of you feel kind of threatened by that. What Mikey's saying, I'm not a Christian. Is that what you're saying? Well, maybe. It's possible that some of you have been even coming to church for years and you don't know Jesus. Uh, despite using perhaps even the, the phrase, I'm a Christian, Jesus is Lord, maybe, but you don't actually know Jesus. And at Sidon Hill, as Zach said this morning, we're on about knowing Jesus, but it's more than just intellectually grasping concepts about Him, knowing facts, spiritual data about Him. It's about having a relationship with Him. It's often said the longest journey that one can take in their life is their 18 inches from their head to their heart. Or as the French theologian and mathematician Blaise Pascal said, in the heart which perceives God, it is the heart that perceives God, not the reason. That's what faith is. God perceived by the heart, not by the reason. But I suspect that many, if not most of us, do know Jesus. We do know Him personally. We are born-again Christians but still we feel this sense of guilt. 
We know up here, of course, yes, our sin has been paid for. Jesus died for that on the cross. But deep down, there's a bit of a disconnect. Uh, perhaps, um, you know, the thought of, you know, am I really a Christian kind of begins to wander into our psyche. God knows everything that I've done and all the things that I haven't done. Am I a hypocrite? Church, brothers and sisters, here's a word for us this morning that I want us to ponder upon. Not just kind of think about, yep, kind of one and done here on a Sunday, can move on with our life, but a word that I'd love us to meditate upon this week. Allow this word to to sink deeply into our heart, into our bones, into our soul. A word that if we grasp it, it should make our, our skin kind of prickle, our hair stand up, and that feeling of goosebumps. I think if we understand this word, if we really believe and receive the truth unpacked in this one word, then I really believe it's the key to not just this problem of guilt and insecurity, but it's so critical to knowing who Jesus is in our hearts. This word, in fact, occurred 11 times as Evan read that chapter for us. Are you ready for it? It's this word, glory. Can everyone say glory? Glory. Now, before we kind of unpack what this word is and what Paul's trying to do with it, um, just if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, uh, we are three weeks into a series called Jars of Clay, looking at this letter into Corinthians. Uh, it's not the second letter, it's perhaps the fourth letter, written by uh, the guy called the Apostle Paul, St. Paul. He loves this church. In fact, it's a bit of a love-hate relationship he has with this church in Corinth. Namely, Paul loves them and you know, they kind of hate him. That's the love-hate relationship. Um, but, but he planned to kind of go back. We saw last week that he planned to go back and visit them again um, twice, but um, that he couldn't. He explained why. Actually, because I love you. Uh, I did it out of love and even tough love. We saw last week as well that, that Paul uh, deals seriously with sin, uh, with rebellion against God as well, out of tough love. And, but yet, the church is to be a place of forgiveness, uh, it's a, to be a place that smells like Jesus, and Jesus is one of forgiveness. And we, if we're to be a church that smells like Jesus, we need to know this word, glory. Now, in the original Greek, that's the language the New Testament was written, it's this word doxa, where we get the word doxology, if you've heard that before. It means holiness, splendor, majesty, spl- uh, transcendence, honor. You know, it's this word that... Uh, it should make us stand back in awe and genuinely, you know, not just with an emoji, genuinely say, wow, wow. We're going to see three things about glory that should drastically shape how we approach all of our lives and indeed uh, wrestle with this nagging guilt that many of us find ourselves in. I hope this morning that we can just lift our gaze just a little bit and behold God's glory. All right, first point, that the gospel is about God's glory. The gospel is about God's glory. Subtitle, it's not about you. You know, as a kid, uh, I used to think that my life was a bit like the Truman Show. Anyone seen the Truman Show? It's with Jim Carrey from the 90s, and uh, before he sort of went a bit weird. Anyway, but it's, uh, it's about, um, you know, this man, Jim Carrey, and he's, he's, he's Truman, and he's, um, his life is this big documentary and there's cameras all watching him. I used to think the world was watching me. It's all about me. I think deep down I craved attention, wanting to make life all about me. That's why I've never had a massive problem with, with public speaking. I think because I, I don't mind attention. 
And I want to use it as an opportunity for people to, to think highly of me. But many of us, I know, and in fact, statistically, at least three quarters of Australians really fear, uh, perhaps what I'm doing right now, public speaking. Um, it, it can be anxiety-inducing. I think at least in part of that is because when you get up the front, that there's like, literally there are lights on me, that there's the spotlights on you, and, and that kind of exposes us. We don't want to be humiliated. We don't want to feel ashamed. We want to be well-liked, respected. Uh, and, and it's why we, often we have that, that haunting dream of waking up, not waking up, but in a public place, uh, that'd be a reality. And wait, you know, that dream where you're in a public place and you've suddenly got no clothes on. You know, well, most of us have had that dream. It's, it kind of scars our soul. Attention and being well-liked. I've, I've got kids, right? I've got three kids, um, two girls and a little baba, little boy. But my girls, right? Like, I didn't need to teach them how to be selfish, it's the air that they breathe. I think one of the first words they learnt to say was mine. Um, you know, our four-year-old neighbour came over yesterday just for a little impromptu play date and you know, the four-year-old starts playing with my two-year-old Lily's train set. Oh no, don't play with Lily's train set. Lily was quite happily in the other room. She had no kind of concept of her train set. Suddenly, when someone else invaded that kingdom of hers, whew, she lost it. But raising kids, like... It, it's for, for us at least, it can be like holding up a mirror. It's scary and confronting because the sin that I see in them is the sin that I see in myself. I see selfishness. I see wanting to make a world all about me. And I think we apply selfishness subtly to our faith and even the way we view church. We might be thinking here this morning, hey, what can I get out of church today? When we look for a church, we sort of go church shopping. How can I go to a church that suits my needs? Will God answer my prayers? Can I find a verse in here that will speak to me now? Paul, in this passage, and indeed his whole life and ministry, he reminds us of glory. Uh, if you go back just to chapter 2, uh, we'll just read a few verses just to, to kind of get the context. Um, remember last week we saw uh, from Zach, we saw that Paul, he's explaining the, myth, the message of Christianity. And he uses this Roman metaphor, uh, saying that the, the good news, I'll use the English, it's, it's like a Roman ticker tape parade <laughs> um, it, he, um, that, that we're part of, right? But look at who it's about. Verse 14 of chapter 2. Uh, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. You know, God is leading the parade through Jesus so that Jesus would be known everywhere, this fragrance of Christ to be spread out. And it says in verse 15 that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death to death, but to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who are we? As Zach helpfully reminded us or, or taught us last week, uh, that we are, we are wafters. We are wafters of this Jesus smell. We're to be Jesus-smelling people. We aren't, as Paul says in verse 17, contrasting, we aren't peddlers. It's a peddler. A peddler is one who kind of sells an inferior product to make a buck. It's sort of like selling the, the Aldi gospel or the Kogan gospel, right? You know, cut a few corners here, make it look nice, kind of sell it for half price, make a buck. No, we're not peddlers, right? We're not peddlers of God's word. Um, Paul is a man of sincerity, and what is the gospel? Well, it's all about God's glory. It's all about Him. 
And different people, they'll react differently to this. To some, it's going to be the words of life. To others, it's the words of death. Same gospel, same message, yet people react differently. It's sort of like heat or the sun being applied to bread and butter. You know, some people like bread, some people like butter. What do I mean by that? You know, the, the sun, it, it heats up bread. It makes it hard, stiff, unusable, whereas the sun, it can melt butter. Some people respond with hearts that are soft towards the things of Jesus. Others, it is hard. Now, we're going to see uh, in this passage, it's like a veil is lifted upon the eyes of those who are unbelieving. It's only the Holy Spirit who is able, gives us eyes to see the good news of Jesus, whereas everyone else, our default status is we're hardened. It's like we're, we're dark, we're blind to the good news of Jesus. Over the last couple of years, we've seen a bunch of people come to know Jesus, soften to the message of Him. Um, but notice back in verse 15 uh, that we are the aroma of Christ, not to other people, but primarily to God. We are the aroma of Christ to God. You know, ultimately, when we share Jesus, when we put Him on display, we're doing that not primarily for other people, though that is true and loving, and that's the best way you can love people, share Jesus with them, but primarily we do it to God. Jesus, He died on the cross, yes, because He loves us, but ultimately to glorify God the Father. The message, the gospel of Jesus, not about you. It's not even primarily about love, though that's so core to the message of Christianity. It's ultimately about God's glory. And so we see in verse 17, Paul, he's commissioned by God in the sight of God and he speaks in Christ. Our guilt problem, at the very least, has some perspective when we get this. It's not about you. It's not about you. The question, have I done enough, tried hard enough? Will God let me in? God knows about that. Not many other, no one knows about that. Yes, because it's not about you. He'll let you in because of Jesus if you trust in Him. It's the, it's the wrong question. Once we realize that life is all about Him, man, that takes the pressure off. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need City on a Hill, Brisbane. His cosmic glory is not kind of in the balance of whether or not you're faithful to Him this week, whether or not you or I worship Him. And by worship, I don't just mean singing. It seems part of worship. But Romans 12, Paul says that all of life is worship. Uh, Bob Calfin, the songwriter, theologian, he says, In worship, God invites us to join Him in what He is already doing. God's already set up this world, the universe, so that they might worship Him. And God invites us to keep partnering in what He is already doing. I love how John Piper, um, the American theologian, author, pastor, he says this, that we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Well, because there's a greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is to beholding self. You know, when you go to a view, uh, maybe not many of us spend the Grand Canyon, but you know, you go to Mount Cuthra at least, or you go to, um, you know, it's, it's pretty good, pretty close, right? You go somewhere, Mount Cravat, you go up to a mountain, and, and you see the view, right? You go Banya, Tipperary, you go somewhere, right? You go somewhere, you see the view. You don't go, wow, aren't I amazing? How good am I? At least you go, isn't this cool? If you're a Christian, 
you might lift your eyes up and go, wow, God made this. Glorifying God. It's how God made us and it's healing for our soul. As Paul says in his uh, earlier letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, he says that everything we do, even eating, drinking, we do it for the glory of God. That's how God made us. The gospel, it's not about you. It's about God's glory. Secondly, the new covenant is far more glorious than the old. The new covenant is far more glorious than the old. Uh, if you check out, uh, flick over to chapter 3, verse 7. And now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Now, one of the most important themes of the Bible is this word, covenant. Covenant, it's a word that we sort of don't really use um, in everyday Australian English. Uh, it's a word that uh, I think best understood through the, the picture of relationship. Uh, in particular, marriage is a great way of explaining it. Uh, in fact, God even uses that to explain it, uh, his relationship with his people. It's this contractual relationship. Now, the Old Covenant, it refers to this relationship that was established uh, with Moses as their spiritual leader. God's people, they were given the law, headlined by the Ten Commandments, showing them what it means to love and worship God and love other people and live in the land. Uh, in Deuteronomy, uh, the fifth book of the Bible, uh, you can read about this covenant. I'll just read it. Read a few verses in chapter 30, pop up on the screen. Um, See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments, as Moses preaching, of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, if by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. Now, time and time again, God's people are like, yeah, we'll do it. And then it does not end well for them. But if you think of it like a marriage, and a bunch of us here are married, I'm sure most of us know someone is married. If you don't, I'm married. But um, God is saying that, you know, if you're... Um, if, you're, if you're faithful to me, then it will go well for you. Uh, you'll live long, there'll be blessings, our marriage will be good. But if you don't stay faithful, there'll be consequences. There'll be consequences. And so here's, uh, in chapter 3, back in 2 Corinthians, this is just kind of a summary of how Paul describes this old covenant. Uh, here's a, a table pop-up on the screen. The nature, what's described as a letter or the law, it's this written Code. It was given to Moses, who was the mediator between God and man. You know, people had to kind of access God through Moses. It was written on, on stone tablets, remember the Ten Commandments. But it's a ministry, it's serving death and condemnation. Now, it's still good, right? We don't kind of think old, bad, new, good. Like, it's, it is still good. It's a grace, it's a gift from God, and it's still serving a purpose, but uh, it, the access to God was veiled. Like you couldn't kind of see all of Him. You just saw glimpses of Him. Uh, the, the picture the Bible uses is like a shadow. 
shadow of things to come. It was temporal. It, it was limited in its time period. But it was glorious. Like there is glory to it. Again, that is limited. And, and so it's, uh, it's a little bit like a mirror. Uh, what's its purpose? It's a mirror. And uh, like my kids are like a mirror to me, that the old covenant was a mirror to show people, show God's people, Israel, their sin, their need for a saviour. Now, more than that, and we could kind of, you know, have a, a five-week sermon series on covenants, and, and maybe we'll do that at some point, but that's just kind of brief, brief summary of the Old Covenant. Um, but Paul, right, like, why is he writing this? Well, well Paul's defending uh, his ministry at one level. He's been critiqued. Uh, is he really a legitimate apostle? Um, and uh, and the, the Corinthians, they were challenging um, him on how legitimate he was back in first century Greece. You have these guys, they're called the sophists. They're sort of like professional TED talkers. Uh, they'd go around, they'd stir up a crowd, they'd kind of pass around money, they'd, they'd charge to kind of be graced with the presence of these guys who would kind of puff their chests and, and speak these words. That was sort of entertainment on Saturday night, you know, before other forms of, of, of entertainment for us. And um, Paul, he's, he's saying he's nothing like these guys. He wouldn't use these means. And so they're asking for his credentials. What does he say? Well, let's go back. Before we get back to covenant, let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation you know, for you, from you? you know, do I need to kind of give my CV? Um, do I need to kind of give referees to kind of show why I'm here? Well, what does he say? He does defend himself. He says, you yourself are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Uh, what he's about to do, he's about to kind of uh, unpack uh, the implications of the new covenant. And you, verse 3, sorry, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You know, the church that Paul planted uh, it was a living organism. Uh, Paul's confident in his ministry, not because of, of him, but because God sent him there. Now, it's all about God. He's not insecure, um, but he's confident because of what God is doing. And so keep reading. Verse 4, he says this, that such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us to be ministers of a new covenant. So just to kind of sum up, what he's saying is God plus nothing, that's enough, that's everything, right? If you've got God, you don't need anything else. You don't need any other credentials. He is the one worthy of glory. He's the one who's in charge. He's the one who's made Paul a minister. Uh, it's a servant of the gospel. And if you're a follower of Jesus too, you're like, you, you don't have the same kind of role uh, as Paul, nor do I, nor Zach, but, but we're all ministers. We're all servants of the gospel. We're all wafters, if you like, of the gospel. And God has made you sufficient for that task. Why? Because of the new covenant. Now, what's the new covenant? Well, the prophet, hundreds of years before, the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, he, he talked about it and he said the days are coming where there's going to be something better, um, something better than what was established under Moses. He says this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, that behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke 
though I was their husband. See that the marriage language declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, sorry, teach his neighbor and his, each his brother saying, know the Lord for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquities, I mean sin, and they'll remember their sin no more. So that's the, the prophesied, the predicted time when this new covenant, this new arrangement, this radically new glorious thing will, will, will come. That was what was anticipated. And Paul's saying, hey, it's here. This time is here. So just to kind of compare these two covenants from this passage, the old covenant, the letter, it, it superseded. The new covenant, it's the gospel. It's mediated not through Moses, but through Jesus. Jesus, who is God the Son, we can go straight to Him. We don't need to, to kind of have anyone else to, to kind of um, to tether, to, to intercede for us. We go straight to Jesus, who is God. We don't uh, receive it through the law, but God writes His law on our hearts. It's a ministry of His Holy Spirit, His personal presence and power within us. And He is the one that makes us right with Him. And so our access to God, it's not veiled. We have this direct line. Just pause for a moment. I think we, we underestimate this, or we take this for granted. I'll just read again verse 12, uh, since, uh, chapter 3. Um, since then we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. God's people back in Moses' day, that they couldn't get too close to God. I remember God's personal presence uh, dwelt in, in the tabernacle, that's like the tent and then the temple. Uh, there were lots of rules about who could and couldn't go in there. But in the, the, middle, the middle inner sanctum, the, the holy of holies, the, there was only one guy, the high priest was allowed to go there once a year. Why? Because it's like they needed this spiritual hazmat suit to protect the people from getting too close to a holy God. So they wouldn't see the outcome of getting too close, being brought to an end. That's die. God says that no one can look at my presence and live. And why is that? It's because of our sin, our impurities, that they clash with God's holiness. You know, God is like fire, and our sin is sort of like petrol, right? It just blows up when they interact. But things have changed. See, now we have God himself living in us by his spirit. How is that possible, right? We've got petrol everywhere. Shouldn't we explode and burn up? Well, we should if God was only just. You know, sometimes we say we're sinners saved by grace. You guys heard that before? We're sinners saved by grace. Yeah, a few people, a few nods. Um, No, that's partially true, but somewhat misleading because that's who we were. We're going to look at this more in coming weeks. But we are now new creations. We are a new entity. A place where the fire and petrol don't mix. that They don't interact. That it's dealt with. It's gone. We are now something more glorious, more beautiful, more impenetrable before a holy God. We have the righteousness or the right standing or the, the sonship of Jesus in 
instead in our place. You know, back to the table. Like, it's not also a temporal thing, like this new covenant, this new scenario. It's not going to be superseded with something better. No, this is it. And this is going to go on forever. This is eternal. And it's so much more glorious because it's not the, you know, the man in the mirror. It's not, it's not looking up and seeing your sin and being confronted by it. That's a shadow pointing towards something in the future. It's, it's now the thing in of itself. We have access to God, life in the Spirit. And that's why Paul says in verse 17, where the Spirit is, under these new covenant conditions, that's where freedom can be found. If we are under the new covenant, the old covenant is surpassed, and we now have freedom. We don't have to feel guilt and shame. We have hope and confidence because of what God has done, is doing, and what He will do. Now, that does not mean that the Old Testament can um, you know, just be thrown out, that we start at Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. No, no. We'll read it in context, but the Old Testament, it's a shadow of what is to come. Uh, you know, that's why it's here on a hill. We, we spend time in the Old Testament. We just finished a series on Joshua. Uh, because it, it actually, it's all God's word. It's all useful. It's all profitable. But it's the shadow. Sorry, the Old Covenant, it's different to the Old Testament. The Old Covenant uh, is the conditions that people of the Old Testament lived under. And now I was trying to think of an analogy to help us explain this. The best that I could come up with is an online relationship. An online relationship. Now, uh, we live our lives online, of course, and um, often relationships of all kinds are not just romantic, but they start online. Uh, some of you who are married, you even met online. Uh, but friendships can start online too. But you know, imagine you meet someone online, platonic or otherwise, and, and then you finally meet them in person, right? It's more glorious, uh, hopefully more lasting. You, you've got access to that person in a way that you didn't have before, in a way that an online relationship doesn't provide. Uh, here's, if that didn't work for you, I'll um, use my old pastor's analogy, um, Andrew Heard. Uh, he says, he talks about adoption, right? Imagine you're adopting a child from, say, another country. And uh, in a beautiful thing, uh, by the way. Hard to do, uh, but, but a beautiful thing uh, to do. And, uh, and you get given this photo of the child. And you're, you're longing for this day where you, you get to meet them. And then, you know, the, all the paperwork's done. Uh, and finally, you kind of go to Brisbane International Airport. And you get to meet them. You start a relationship. You now have a son or a daughter. What a special moment. What do you do with the photo? Well, the photo has become superseded by the real thing. Yeah, sure, a photo might have some sentimental value, but, but now this new relationship, this new covenant is more glorious. It's unveiled. You get to see them face to face. The new covenant that we have access to in Jesus. It's more glorious. It's more precious because it's the real thing. So we've seen that the gospel, it's all about God's glory. It's not about you. Secondly, we now have access to this new and glorious covenant. Thirdly, finally, it's my shortest point, I hope, that the greatest glory is yet to come. The greatest glory is yet to come. Uh, come with me to verse 18 of chapter 3. And we all, with, an un with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. <clears throat> from, this com from this comes, sorry, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
It is comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The veil is gone. We now have access to the glory of God. According to Jesus, we have been seen. We are known. We have friendship with God. We were enemies, but now we are friends. But you know what? God has not finished with us yet. I think sometimes, um, uh, rightly so, at Sidon Hill and churches uh, perhaps like us, we have a high view of the cross. The cross is really important, right? Uh, but sometimes uh, we can reduce our relationship with God to a transaction. Yes, Jesus did die for our sins on the cross. That is true. That is central. We, we don't want to depart from that. That's not all he did. And when Jesus said, it is finished, what he doesn't mean is that God is finished with you. Yes, when you become a Christian, your debt, your slate has been clean, paid for. Jesus took the bullet for you. He's done your jail time. You're born again. You're friends with God. You're alive. You're adopted. All these things are true. But when Jesus died on the cross, he's still going. He's still He's alive again, and He's at work in your life through His Holy Spirit. In fact, God says in this verse that you are being transformed into the same image as the Lord. You're being transformed into more and more like Jesus. And the more you walk with Jesus, uh, the more you gaze into Him, look to Him through His Word, walk with Him in His Spirit, that's the more the more God makes you more and more like Him, one degree at a time. And a bunch of us were yesterday at a men's conference, I think the first kind of time the Brisbane has kind of done something like this, at least for years, and there were over 400 blokes wrestling with this question, uh, what it means to be a man and follow Jesus. It was a great time. Uh, look forward to it next year. But the last session, uh, the, the title of the last session, there were kind of three talks or three and a half talks, um, and uh, the speaker, Al Stewart, he, he titled this, The Power of Just Showing Up. The Power of Just Showing Up. And Al was talking about uh, the week in, week out, steady growth of people in kind of ordinary Christian life, just showing up, showing up to church, showing up to read their Bible each day, love their families or love the people that God's entrusted them to. Um, just the power of showing up. He even quoted Woody Allen. I mean, he, he said he doesn't agree with Woody Allen on most things. I probably don't either. But, but he says that 80, Woody Allen says 80% of success is just showing up. Um, just showing up. Now, sometimes I think, uh, especially in this day and age, we want a quick fix to things. You know, we want to kind of Google or, you know, chat GBT, a problem, um, kind of get that, you know, get that thing fixed. Uh, can I inject some Jesus into my veins to make me better, to give me some more growth and transformation? But ordinarily, like sometimes there can be you know, seasons of, of remarkable growth, but I think ordinary, the Christian life, it's one of just slow, one foot after another, two steps forward, maybe a stumble, a face plant, a sidestep. Uh, the Christian life, it's just this slow churn. There's a lot of ordinary, mundane, frankly, boring moments. But, but there's this incredible power of just showing up. The slow burn of showing up, walking with the Spirit, because God is with you. You know, I see, um, I see people that, that show up, uh, and not just here, over, over my, my years as a Christian, I, I just see people that, that show up each week, most weeks, uh, for years, decades even, and, and just see the, the, the growth and the gospel-shaped confidence that they have. 
And often these people, these men and women, aren't the ones that are up the front. Uh, they're not the ones that we, we notice. Uh, but yet faithfully, they're walking with Jesus years, decades down the track. Church, many of us are young, many of us are under 40. We want to be like the people that say, hey, I've walked with Jesus 30, 50 years. Humble, faithful servants. And, and how do we do that? Well, one thing we need to do is behold the glory of God with this future hope. God will do an incredible work in us if we keep showing up for 30 years. I'm excited for the next 30 years of your lives, wherever God would lead us. That's going to be a spectacular moment looking back upon. But as I invite the band up, church, let's lift our horizons even further to eternity. The one day where we will see the Lord Jesus. The veil has been lifted, but we haven't seen him fully in all his glory face to face. And in fact, we will be glorified like him. We'll be in this resurrected, glorified, incredible state. I can't even imagine what it is going to be like. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he writes this essay, it's like 10 pages, it's not super long, called The Weight of Glory. And he says this, the promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in that divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, God doesn't just feel sorry for us, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or as a father in a son. It seems possible. Sorry, important distinction. It seems impossible. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. Are you feeling guilty? If you walk in here feeling guilty this morning, weighed down, burdened, maybe apathetic, feel like you're not doing well as a Christian. Church, here's some good news for you. If you trust in Jesus, you please God. God delights in you. In Zephaniah 3, God says he'll, he'll sing over you. He'll rejoice over you in song. He'll look at you one day in glory and say, well done, good and faithful servant. The truth in this weight of glory is firmly in the heart of Paul. That's why he says in verse 12, in the face of internal opposition, that we have a hope and we can be bold. Friends, we can boldly approach tomorrow morning our Christian lives because it's not about us, it's about His glory. We have a new and better covenant. God is with us, living in us by His Spirit, and He's transforming us from one degree of glory to another. Church, let's be a church of glory, not guilt, because the gospel, the good news, is the gospel of glory, not guilt. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just pause now and reflect on your glory, your goodness to us. Lord, you are incomprehensible. You are infinite. You are eternal. And we praise you that you have made a way for us, these little people, to have a relationship with you, the Holy God. 
Lord, we're sorry for the times where we make it all about us. Lord, help us to repent, to flee from ourselves even today. And may we walk humbly with you as our God. May we lift our eyes, our horizons up from beyond this week, this year. May we see eternity that you have already set in our hearts. May that give us hope to, as a community, be the city on a hill that you have called us to be. May we shine the light of Christ to Brisbane and beyond. And we pray this for your glory. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.